I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. Historically, public shaming is nothing new, but has the increased volume and cruelty of shame taken on a new dimension, and at what cost? We as a country are sort of doling out shame at a at an increased clip. We're not even aware of. We're not naming it. We're not observing it carefully. And we we need to in order to control it. And later, racism and white guilt. How effective is shame as a tool for social justice? Shaming as a crucial tool of social justice leaves other practices of social justice aside and unpracticed. The sorts of tools that actually might foster deliberation, I worry that the practice of shaming as essential as it is, alienates potential allies. The dual nature of shame is a product of capitalism and an ancient tool for maintaining and sometimes upending social norms. That's coming up on Life Examined. Whether as a child or as an adult, most of us can recall a moment of shame, that painful, traumatic feeling of humiliation, a cruelty spoken out loud, the embarrassment of seeing an injustice and doing nothing, or the guilt of taking something that wasn't yours. Shame is often most deeply felt when it comes with unwanted exposure, and it's nothing new. Throughout our history, shame has played a crucial social function, both for maintaining cultural norms and in subjugating those who are quote-unquote different, homosexuals, divorcees, immigrants, the list goes on. But how has shame evolved, not just to humiliate and control, but to make money? Has social media given shame a booster shot? Data scientist and writer Kathy O'Neill takes an analytical look at the recent uptick in shame and how it's being used for financial and social gain. O'Neill has a PhD in mathematics from Harvard and is the author of several books, including Weapons of Math Destruction, and her latest is called This Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? Kathy O'Neill, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, shame, I feel like, is is kind of uh, become more and more on our minds over the last few years. But I, but I'm curious as to your personal inroad with this. Why why did you feel like this was an important topic for you to tackle? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I I've sort of my previous book was about algorithms and you know the dark side of big data, if you will. And there was, of course, a lot of power in the tech sector. But what I saw even more. Uh, well, fascinating to me was that a lot of the power was that sort of the power of bad algorithms was actually shame induced. So when I interviewed teachers who were being fired based on a opaque score system that you, they didn't understand, um, I I sort of I pushed them. I said, "Well, what did you what did you say when you you know who did you ask like to explain your score when you were told you were fired?" And they consistently told me, oh, they told me it was math and I wouldn't understand it. Huh. Um, so, 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 so part of it is like the power of the, the push against teacher unions. And like, that's an important story. But another part of it is just sort of that systematic and very deliberate attempt when somebody asks questions to tell them, no, you don't know enough. You, you know, shame on you. Like you're not a math person. Mm-hmm. And that fascinated me. But it also, like, I, I felt like an outside observer. I was like, oh, you know, simply because of my background in mathematics, I, I wouldn't myself be vulnerable to that type of shaming. But then like, sometime later, I was doing research on bariatric surgery for myself um, as a way of avoiding diabetes. And it was, of course, primarily a weight loss surgery. And as soon as I started Googling for more information, I myself got inundated with fat shaming ads. Hmm. And I have to mention that like, I worked in ad tech. I was a data scientist. I, you know, I know exactly why I got those ads. And yet they had the exact intended effect um, on me, which is that I wanted to curl up in a little ball and just like pay someone as much money as they asked for to make this feeling go away. I wanted to like seed my rights um, as a fat person, I felt like I wasn't eligible to be healthy. You know, it was just so devastating and also so systemic um, and very deliberate. So I made those that connection between those two things. I was like, wait a second. Like, <laughs> and they both happen to be related to my field of expertise, which is algorithms and, and, and like technology. Um, so I was starting to think how the, the extent to which technology and algorithms have like turned shame, have weaponized shame um, as a way of getting us to cede our rights, to to gain power or to just pay. Mm. 
It's interesting because when I initially think of, say, public shaming, it's from a group of individuals aimed at one or two people or a small group, right? It's more of a human to human relationship. But I, I had never actually thought about it as as an algorithm shaming people. But of course, just as you say, uh, that's kind of the world we're interacting with throughout the day, at least online, isn't it? It's algorithms. It is algorithms. Um, whether it's um, the ad tech algorithms that decide which ad to show you that you'll be the most vulnerable to and will click most quickly on impulsively. So that for me, that would be like like cashmere yarn. I'm a huge yeah. like knitter mm -hmm. and a, like I'm very vulnerable and susceptible to jewel toned cashmere yarn, you know? Um, and that is, um, you know, maybe fair game if you will, but it's also an algorithm. It's a sort of built up a, a, as a profile and they look for the person online with the most, you know, the closest match to that profile. Um, it could also take much darker forms. It could be people who are um, known to be gambling addicts, people who are known to be desperate for uh, to borrow money if it's payday loans. There's all sorts of like very dark ways that advertisement is sent to us. Um, but you know, one of the one of one of the things that I point out in the shame book is that um, that you know even the old school forms of shame, which are like shame women for wrinkles um, in the world of cosmetics, um, that has been hyper sort of hypercharged in the in the age of algorithms and the age of social media platforms in particular. Like if you think about um, the body shaping apps that uh, even young women are are targeted for. Um, in the in TikTok uh, and other kinds of Instagram, it, sort of sort of very sort of self conscious making, and um, sort of body centric social media, all that stuff. I would call that like old school shaming because it's not new. You know, like we've been selling women um, saggy skin cream for hundreds of years. Um, that's an old version of like how to profit for shame. I will I will classify that as like shaming people to make them buy your product. Yeah. Um, but there's a newfangled way of doing it too, um, to your earlier point of algorithms running amok, like the new, for, for the social media platforms don't actually need to shame us directly. What they do instead is they serve us shaming content, right? So they serve it, they serve us content, um, that is optimized to keeping us on their platforms, i.e. like optimized to, um, making us feel outraged and angry and to shame each other and to create division. Um, so it's, it's kind of an indirect shame machine in the sense that they don't directly shame us for money. They indirectly shame us to, or get us to shame each other is even more, yeah. more accurate. So they've conditioned us to behave like uh, shaming mobs at all times. Right. Well, maybe let's let's take a step back and just think about really what shame is, how it's been weaponized, and why it's it's so powerful. And my sense is, it's been powerful for as long as humans have been around, or could could feel this, or could project it. So, when you were writing this book, how did you begin to understand what shame is and kind of its its role in our in our humanity? Great question. Yeah, I mean, we can't really understand it unless, um, you know, we go back to the roots because it is a very useful thing. I mean, it's <laughs> what I've said so far makes it sound like, I think we should stop shaming. No, like we actually shaming is hugely important. It is what ideally in an ideal situation, it, 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 it makes our community more coherent. So the idea of shame is that it's, it's so any, anytime you shame somebody, it's relative to a norm, to a, to a rule. And that rule is almost always, or at least, you know, meant to be always um, some kind of conflict that you might have between what you want to do for yourself and what you want to do for your community. And it's basically a rule that says you have to do this, this for your community, even though you might not want to do it for yourself. So like a very great example would be like, you cannot hoard food in a time of famine. Like you might want to hoard food because you personally don't want to starve, but if everyone hoarded food, then more people would starve overall. So that's a rule. Um, and it's a very enforced rule. And there's lots and lots of rules like that, that are like slightly weaker versions of that, where you have to, for the sake of the community and for the sake of community cohesion, do stuff that might not be attractive to you. So it does create a conflict in you, right? It's like, you have to, you, you don't really want to do it, but you do it anyway. 
And, and the, the way it sort of forces your hand is that shame, like, and this will probably be familiar to most people, like the feeling of shame is a terrible feeling. It's like a deeply, deeply terrible feeling. It makes you feel unlovable and unworthy, unworthy of love. Um, and in fact, that's exactly the point. Like you are going to be spurned by your community if you do not follow the rules is the basic threat. Um, so it really does feel in, in many cases as if somebody's punched you. It's like almost somehow more, more violent and more painful than physical violence because it can last years um, depending on how, how seriously it felt at the beginning. Um, so it really is almost like a physical harm. Um, and it's not something you should do lightly. I mean, that's, I think, hopefully very clear is that shaming might be a very useful tool. It might keep people from doing really antisocial things as a rule, but it also is an extreme and crude form of punishment. Yeah. How do we distinguish between shame and guilt? Because shame produces an emotion. And yeah. to me, they seem to be very interrelated. Um, how, how do you kind of parse those two? Yeah. I mean, guilt is like, I did something wrong and shame is I'm unworthy and I'm unlovable. Mm. Like it's a really different, it's much deeper and more holistic than guilt. So you can feel guilty about, oh, I, I threw away that thing I should have recycled. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, but you can correct your behavior next time. Um, whereas with shame, you can't make up for it. Um, it oh. is actually a feeling like, no, it is a permanent blot on my character. Having said that, I do think that there are commonalities. Like one of the things I want to emphasize in my book is that shame has become a tactic of institutions, right? It's a, it's a managing tactic. It was a managing tactic for the teacher value added model that I talked about before, like firing teachers based on these opaque um, scoring systems. It's a tactic of of marketers to get people to buy their things. I, I want people to think institutionally. And if you think institutionally, you realize that guilt is also a tactic, right? We know the story of like the beverage makers using huge amounts of plastic and, and tin for their beverages. And then instead of taking on their responsibility for like all the, all of the damage they've done to the environment, they make us feel guilty about recycling those things. You know what I mean? It's a distraction maneuver. And that's a really important part of the shame tactics in the shame machine too. Like oftentimes shame is used by an institution on the victims of a problem in order to say, it's your problem, not, not our problem. Interesting. Um, and that, that's in common with shame and guilt. So yeah. even though shame is much, much more diabolical. So there certainly has, though, been, I think, some aspect of shame as a controlling device yes. by by kind of the patriarchy, the church. I'm sure there's there's a million examples of that. Yeah. I mean, and, and especially like shaming the victim. You know, you see that it's I mean, shaming, shaming doesn't only make someone feel bad. It also silences them. So shaming the victims of like uh, the child abuse by the Catholic church or any other child abuse for that matter. It's, it's, it's a very, very consistent story um, that shame plays a huge amount of a huge part of that. And it, and is comes from the power um, and the larger the institutions and the more organized the institutions, um, the more shame tactics are, are applied. So it is sort of historically a way of maintaining power and maintaining the status quo. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I, and, and that's not new, Although I do think our institutions have gotten like more organized about it. What is new is just the amount of profit we're we're also seeing made from it. Yeah. And and before we get to that, I mean, the last few years, I think, have been interesting in perhaps in the way some of this has flipped on its head in terms of the Me Too movement and how greater voices were coming together to take down figures, particularly a lot of white men that held power for a long time. So, I mean, there has been some shifts in the way this has been wielded, right? Well, I, okay. So like great example, me too. I would argue that that's, is a positive uh, way of using shame. I call that right. punching up shame because it's punching, it's holding power to account so it, you know, the way the taxonomy I, I, I give shaming uh, tactics is like, I ask people, is their choice and is their voice? So are you shaming somebody for something that they choose to do, which in the case of 
men uh, abusing their power to sexually assault women? The answer is yes, they could choose not to do that. And do they have the voice to defend themselves and to be seen um, improving their behavior if, if applicable? And that is also the case, in the, at least for the, for the very famous Me Too examples like Harvey Weinstein. So this is punching up. It, it, it is appropriate. Um, well, that's what I mean by punching up. It's an appropriate use of shame. But I will also say that, you know, all civil rights movements have been punching up, right? You know, if you think about the South African apartheid movement, um, you know, like the uh, the movement against it, it was an international shaming boycott, right? And it worked. Um, so like you should think of um, all civil rights movements as, as having shame as their one and only tool, especially in the cases where the law is unjust, the yeah. law itself. They can't appeal to higher powers like law, they have to appeal to higher powers like ethics, like what people actually claim to believe in. Um, the, of course, it, it doesn't always work, um, especially if the, if the people in power actually don't claim to have norms. They don't have ideals or principles that they're pretending to follow. In that case, no, no amount of shame is actually going to, is, is going to land. Yeah. This makes me think of of social media, which is something I think that whenever it comes up on this show, we're generally talking about the ills of it and yeah. how little it's done for culture. And I mean, you reference, for example, Instagram and how there could be so much body shaming on that. And the reports that came out in the Wall Street Journal that talked about just kind of the incredible damage it's doing to young women in terms of body yeah. image. But, you know, it's interesting because we think about it as a tool for getting a voice out and this idea of punching up with Facebook or whatever. I mean, it's also kind of been instrumental in some of these examples that we're talking about. It has. It has. And I will say that um, it potentially could be used as a punching up mechanism primarily, but it primarily isn't. Hmm. To be clear, it's primarily used as a punching down mechanism um, because almost always the targets that on social media of, of viral shame are unknown people. They, are, they don't have the voice in particular. Um, sometimes they don't even have the choice. Like I talk about my book, like, you know, this woman who was obese and fell over in, in Walmart and it was just, she was ridiculed huh. and shamed. Um, that is an extreme case where I, I think a lot of your listeners would be like, I would never like retweet that. But then there's uh, lots and lots of cases where I would argue maybe controversially that it's punching down, even though a lot of people feel completely righteous in retweeting or reliking or sharing on these posts of un of unknown people who have done an arguably bad thing but will never have the right to defend themselves they will not have due process and they will not have the ability to be seen redeemed or do to do better um, and i'm thinking here of like the karen videos and all sorts of other videos um, and of course stories that go viral um, i know people feel good when they do that but they're number one punching down and they're number one and number two not taking the opportunity as you as you just said to punch up punching up in this case would be to actually address the fact that the policing system um, responds to white women in unreasonable ways but not to black people so you know what i mean what social media means represents to me at least from my perspective is uh, conditioning us to make do with punching down instead of actually doing the work of punching up. Well, you actually do talk about some some pretty significant ways in which shame functions in in places like reentry programs, for example, or rehab clinics. Yeah. And and I wonder if you could jump into some of those examples because I my sense is from spending time with your book and talking to you that actually the, this kind of shame machine is happening all around us, but we're just we're so inundated by it. It's just kind of like the air we breathe. We're not even aware of it at this point. So could you pick a few of those examples that I mentioned? Yeah. I, I, thanks for bringing up the uh, reentry program, which um, it's called the CEO program. And like it is, you know, it's, it's paid for and funded by, you know, what you might consider like left foundations. And so I, you know, people on the left typically consider themselves um, more progressive in terms of these kinds of issues. But what I maintain in that chapter is that we shame poor people for being poor. Number one, number two, it's, it's punching down because it's um, because they have no choice about it. Nobody chooses to be poor. And number three, it adds to their problems. It um, it you know being poor is hard enough, but when we shame people for being poor, it really truly adds to their burden. 
And this is just an extreme example of the, of the CEO program where post prison, these uh, folks are, are put out the way it's described is that they're given job training. Um, but what actually happens, and I interviewed a couple of the participants, is they get you know, put uh, out onto the highways picking up garbage and they get paid like $48 a day. And they can't work on Friday, but they have to report to work on Friday. So it's just a miserable existence. And this is in New York City where it's just absolutely not a living wage. And they are under the watch of people that will call their pol- uh, their parole officers if they if they complain or they leave the job. So it's it's essentially a, a continued um, incarceration. The reason that this kind of behavior happens is because we really believe, at some level, as Americans, that um, that that people who are leaving prisoners are subhuman and don't don't deserve re- uh, treatment like with dignity. And so that's one I. I I appreciate you asking this question. I go into this, uh, the work of Donna Hicks, who is a uh, really wonderful um, a person who, who studies and has worked with um, post-war reconciliation committees. So t- talking to people on both sides of a war, whether it's the troubles in Ireland or South Africa, um, uh, and talking to them about sort of resolving what she calls the dignity violations that they underwent before getting to the ticky-tack um, negotiations of a, of a peace agreement. Mm-hmm. She, her, she maintains that you can't really have a negotiated peace treatment agreement work until you've addressed these dignity violations. And she has a list of dignity violations. And these dignity violations are very consistent with what I think of as in, institutionally punching down shame. So there are things like uh, assuming fraud, assuming bad intent, not having fairness, not being a uh, accountable to the people in the system. And so whether it's the uh, rehab clinic or it's the re-entry program, like I just described, or if it's the welfare office, those are all institutions that are designed to punch down and to have and to violate the dignity of the people going through it who are largely poor. You know, it makes me think as, as you're talking about this, just what what role we as individuals have or play in this kind of a larger machine happening around us. I mean, we could talk about solutions or, or ways to work through this, but uh, but I, in some sense, the picture you paint feels a little hopeless because we're dealing on such large institutional levels. I, I, I welcome your thoughts on that. I hope is not, I hope I'm not painting a hopeless picture. I really don't think people intend to to, to cooperate with this kind of unfair um, system. Um, and I, but I do think people, you know, people were born into this system. Like it's, it is kind of everywhere. It is a little bit the, the air we breathe. So the, the goal of the book, the, the, the first term goal of the book is just to, to simply sort of sensitize people to the shame that's all around us. I think that's the very first step. We have to acknowledge um, just how accustomed we've become to punching down on people for things that they can't control or that they can't defend themselves against. That's the very first step, because if we can't see it, we can't address it. Um, and I do think we can see it. And I do think we will be able to address it quite, quite directly. If we just, if you think about, you know, welfare systems and other kinds of reentry systems in other countries, you'll see that they don't do those things. It's not that we can't do it. It's that we actually feel we actually feel like that, like pe- you know, th- those people deserve it. So there's a, this notion of sort of punitive shaming and uh, punitive deservingness that we we can change, but we have to be aware of it and we have to come to terms with it. Well, I'm wondering, Kathy, if there's if there's something that we didn't get a chance to talk about today, but maybe we we should bring it up while we still have time. Are there aspects of this of this book that you know surprised you or you feel like you want to talk about before we close out? I guess just coming from the nerd perspective, like one of the things that kind of surprised me um, was just how much pseudoscience that, um, when, when you're, there is when it comes to the shame machine. There's a lot of, um, you know, whether it's Prevagen, the, the sort of the shaming product that, that tries to shame old people for being senile and tries to sell them on this useless medicine to make them smarter. Um, whether it's like the weight loss industry that has a lot of bad studies that doesn't prove anything for that matter, the sort of techno babble of, 
of algorithms in on social media platforms and in big tech. There's and and in, and it, I even have a chapter on incels, and they have their own ideology that explains their misogyny. Um, it's interesting to me, and I don't really understand it why a shame machine um, in order to sort of get big and powerful and and profitable um, some somehow needs to hang their hat on bad science but it seems to be the case yeah and i wonder if you can say more about the link between capitalism and shame i mean do we have any sense of how much money is made from shaming or how just how uh, what an important tool it really has become because it seems really central now in the way that you know business operates you know i i i remember reading an article which i couldn't find for my book but i'm going to tell you about it anyway that just sort of epitomizes this exact issue to me um it was an article about how in japan women don't feel um ashamed of their hairy legs um but a company that wanted to sell razors to women um, was like, well, we have a two-step process then. The first step is to shame, make them feel ashamed of their hair. And the second step is to sell them the razors. Mm. And I was just like, oh, that's, you know, that's how it works. Um, it's, it, it's a pretty direct and um, we have capitalism to thank for that. You started this interview just sharing a little bit about your own personal experience uh, about having to go through a surgery, which is associated with weight loss. I mean, yeah. are there any other kind of personal stories that that you've experienced as you were writing this or that have still kind of stuck with you, like kind of a residue of some of this work? I talked to a lot of people about this book as I was writing it. And I guess what I would say is it it surprised me and didn't surprise me. Um, just how many people have talked to me about their experiences with sort of chronic shame um, and how, how much their life has been affected by those things. And, you know, so it, people are very, very, it's interesting that people are like almost fixated and obsessed over sh their own shame while at the same time, we as a country are sort of doling out shame um, at a, at an increased clip. It's, it's kind of this invisible pandemic that we're we're not even aware of because we're not we're not naming it we're not observing it carefully and 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 we we need to in order to control it i've been speaking with kathy o'neill author of the new book the shame machine who profits in the new age of humiliation i i really appreciate the time and, and all the research you brought today thank you kathy thank you so much it was really a pleasure to speak to you when we come back shame and racism how effective is shame as a tool for social justice and just a quick minute for us to say thank you to Kate Roth, Daniel Wallach, Nicholas Naylor Leland, and others for your help in growing our Facebook community. And hey, if you come across interesting articles for the group or new books or videos, please post away. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Kathy O'Neill, author of The Shame Machine, talk about the newfound power of shaming and how shame tactics are used in marketing everything from weight loss products to razors and big tech. But can shame also be a tool for social justice? Does society need to feel shame for the pain inflicted on those who have no power or voice? Siva Vadianathan is the Robertson Professor of Media Studies and the Director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Siva, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, my pleasure. So we're exploring shame this hour on the program, and, and I, I want to open the question back up to just how we think of shame as an emotion or as a social mm -hmm. phenomenon. I mean, how do you conceptualize it? Because it's it's on all yeah. of our minds and it's in the media all around us. Right, right, right. I mean, I think of, of guilt as an emotional phenomenon, right? Something that I feel uh, and I, it need not be in relation to anyone else in particular. Shame is a social phenomenon. Shame is is socially constructed shame is socially directed 
Uh, shame is something that I would feel in relation to some sort of um, admonition mm. from others, especially from a group of others or a, a a community or society to which I belong, right? So I'm not yeah. likely to feel shamed by people who are not part of my community or my society if they don't like what I have done or said. I'm not likely to care, mm -hmm. uh, but I might feel shamed and experience that full-on social phenomena if it is an expression of derision or criticism from some group I really care about, right? Mm. So, so I, I think that's that's the best way to think of it. And then, so shame can, of course, operate as an instrument of social control. It's one of our most important instruments of social control. And like any instrument of social control, it can be abused. It can have negative consequences. It can limit human potential, human imagination, human flourishing. It can also help bolster a sense of the communal, the common, the societal, the cultural. It can help work toward a shared sense of justice by by excluding or um or uh, socially punishing uh shunning those who have stepped outside the bounds of acceptable behavior well I, let's move this into the arena of racism and and social justice um as this has been so top of mind over the past few years um, in ways that I think maybe has felt emboldening and also at times discouraging. And I, there's so many emotions, I think, around this. But maybe you can just kind of bring us into to how shame fits into these big questions. Yeah. You know, think about what was shameful in terms of race relations, right? When I was born <laughs> in 1966, hmm. It was socially risky and legally prohibited in much of the country for two people of different established racial categories to marry and start a family, right? It was considered hmm. um, a social abrogation. It would uh, shut one out of um, social opportunities, maybe even professional opportunities, right? You you might not be uh, asked to be part of a club. You might uh, not be invited to a bridge game. And of course, in much of the country before 1967, and by the way, I was born in 1966, uh, before 1967, when the Supreme Court ruled that interracial marriage uh, prohibition was unconstitutional. Uh, you know, much of the country legally forbade that kind of arrangement, right? So there was a time when there was such social shame and legal prohibition attached to it. And that has changed remarkably in the period of my life. I just turned 56. And mm -hmm. that's not a long time in human history for that norm to have changed. It's no longer shameful. That doesn't mean there aren't social costs to having a family made up that way or raising children made up that way, because of course people still face bigotry, both in a social and individual way. Uh, nonetheless, you can see that shift. Now, the other interesting shift over the course of my lifetime is the acceptability of explicitly racist behavior or expression. Hmm. That was common, accepted, right? Stereotypical depictions of certain racial minorities was completely acceptable in the 1960s when I was born. One only needs to see Breakfast at Tiffany's and see uh, Mickey Rooney's racist characterization of a Japanese character, right? To see how acceptable it was. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, I was watching a Simpsons rerun yesterday from the 1980s and it had a racist Japanese depiction in it, mm. you know? So, right. so these days, one would be, I think, appropriately shamed for engaging in that sort of um, that sort of expression. Do you think that um, shame is is an effective social justice tool? That that that's the best way to kind of further conversations to make larger points. What are your thoughts on that? For the powerless, yes, or for those less in power, yes. In fact, sometimes shame is the only tool mm. available, right? So for Japanese Americans in the wake of World War II, what else did they have? For African Americans, through most of American history, shame was not even available to them as a tool. In fact, political and legal 
activity might have been a more effective motion only when social norms changed, right? Only in the wake of World War II with the rise of the civil rights movement and a sense that there may have been and, uh, some, uh, some serious problems that we needed to address. Only very recently has the idea of shaming people for racist expression or racist behavior even been on the table, right? So, but for the powerless, it is sometimes the only thing available. Power is a really important phenomenon in, when we examine questions of how and when and why someone should strike a blow for social justice. Do you think that you know in these in these big and, and difficult conversations about about racism that I mean, there is just such a such a deep seated feeling to avoid feelings of shame? I mean, because I think it can produce such anger or such, uh, you know, just kind of darker emotions that this is, this is something we just hide from, even if we're in the wrong, we just will push it away by any means possible. Well, yeah, I mean, if you don't feel you're being justifiably criticized, or you're not used to being criticized, then you're going to react to the prospect of shaming with uh, great vitriol and mm. on your own. And you may summon your allies, right? If you're in a powerful position, right? Let's say that you have some position of prominence. You're a talk show host, like on a major network, and you have you have friends and allies and network executives on your side. And all of a sudden you're being shamed for saying or doing something racist or saying or doing something sexist. Uh, you are going to summon your allies and you're going to create a response or a reaction that accuses those shaming of engaging in some sort of illiberal behavior, right? Mm -hmm. As if their own expression constitutes a, 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 a an imposition on your expression. And, 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 and that person would try to change the conversation to be one of, of the uh, censorious power of social shaming instead of looking at social shaming as an expression in itself and, and sometimes a necessary expression that perhaps gets us toward a more frank view of how power operates in society. What about, I think, this notion that, that many white liberals um, think of themselves as non-racist? And maybe you can talk about how this idea has shifted and white people have maybe perpetuated certain racist policies in this country for years. You know, it basically doesn't really matter whether an individual is racist or not racist to the larger sense of social justice. The question is, how have you benefited from racism? Can you acknowledge the extent to which you benefited from racism? Mm -hmm. And what are you doing to compensate for that problem, that structure, uh, you know, or not, or, or, or do you continue to benefit from it without acknowledging it? Right. Mm. Do you continue to, um, work on as if one's individual thoughts and feelings matter in the question? Right. And, and this is one of the more frustrating things when we see these discussions of racism publicly or accusations of racism publicly, and then the response to it, right? It's as if, you know, the phrase, and you hear this a lot, especially among like political candidates, right? The phrase doesn't have a racist bone in his body, as if uh -huh. anyone cares about the bones, right? The bones <laughs> aren't the problem. The problem is how one's position in society and the extent to which one occupies that position in society because of advantages that may have been the result of a series of decisions and structures and conflicts centuries ago, more likely even very recently, right? That give people natural opportunities, right? So, so that, I mean, that's, I think one of the things that we we're we're really starting to acknowledge as a society um, in a widespread sense now. And that's why there is so much resistance to this question. Speaking again to, to maybe this question of, of white liberals that have rejected this idea of, of being racist, I mean, what would you say to them in terms of learning to welcome in a little bit of shame or to try and work against the idea of denial? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, uh, you know, we're all potential victims of shaming, uh, justified or unjustified, uh, given that it is a, a common and useful uh, tool or weapon uh, from the uh, the non-powerful, right? We can remember that um, you know it, it's it, it's part of living in a society, mm -hmm. and it, it differs in great 
measure from actual threats or actual exercises of power, right? So there's a there's a difference, for instance, between someone who finds herself at the receiving end of rape threats and death threats and doxing and you know direct confrontation with violence which is a very common phenomenon for any woman who is a, a public figure um or expresses a, an opinion about anything that uh, uh, that might trouble uh certain members of society right especially men right so yeah. so that's a phenomenon that is goes beyond shame right that's just that's not just uh calling someone out and criticizing someone it's it, it's often very direct and personal attacks in a meant to silence the person meant to uh, create attacks for that person to make it more expensive, both in terms of mental and emotional capacity to engage publicly. Right. And that's one phenomenon we're seeing. It has some of the markings of public shaming, but it has very different goals and very different results. Public shaming is something we see much more commonly aimed at the powerful because there seem to be no other ways to address it. So again, let me bring the question back to sexual harassment, which is a, a place we have seen this occur time yeah. and time again. If you have a very powerful network, right, a, a, a communication network, media network, uh, media business, uh, who and that and the network has invested millions of dollars over the years and and promotion and built up uh, all sorts of um, you know structures uh, and institutions around a star who happens to be a man who is engaged in uh, troublesome behavior, perhaps sexual harassment. That company is not going to have a strong interest in taking action within itself to address these problems. And we've mm -hmm. seen this time and time again, which is why people who rose to the level of CEO who were well-known sexual harassers stayed in power for so many decades. There was no way for the power structure internally to address this. And only through public shaming, often through excellent journalistic work or, um, or internet expressions have we seen men in power called to account now this is a tool that is useful for those who are again have have minimal power in a system uh and it is a new problem or uh, challenge for those who are prominent and powerful uh but you know it doesn't do a lot to address most of the racism or most of the sexism that we see in society, right? So, so it's public shaming a talk show host on a major network is something that, you know, we've seen time and time again with various levels of effectiveness, public shaming of a manager at Walmart isn't likely going to, to make much of a difference because nobody knows or cares huh. who the manager of Walmart is, but that's where most of the sexual harassment goes on in everyday life. This is really interesting. I mean, that social media, honestly, really social media has, given a uh, the voiceless a voice to gather in numbers publicly make statements and as we've seen over and over um affect some level of change mm. and um but but i know that there's other aspects of the social media culture that you're perhaps concerned about though too i mean is there another side to this that can be dark and maybe not as as you know as palatable or important as we think well there are two problems one is that that line that i tried to draw before between shaming and harassment, right? Mm. Uh, and um, I'm very curious to see the point at which shaming, which I think is a legitimate public expression by the powerless against the powerful, might bleed over into more problematic behavior, uh, more uh, more uh, potentially violent behavior, right? Um, and we might see that with more occurrence, you know, as, as tensions and uh, tempers grow uh, more more frayed in uh, in our society. So, uh, which is certainly happening right now. Uh, so I worry about that. I also worry that shaming as a crucial tool of social justice leaves other 
practices of social justice aside and unpracticed, right? So uh, unstrengthened, the sorts of tools that actually might foster deliberation within a mm. democratic republic that might bolster and, and be more inclusive, that might attract allies in an effort toward changing society. I worry about that. I worry that that the practice of shaming as essential as it is alienates potential allies. Uh, you know, I don't want to make too much of this. I think I think a lot of people do make too much of this. Um, that especially, you know, people uh, from uh, powerful elements of society who, who are used to being in power and used to being treated politely uh, recoil at the notion of being treated impolitely and I think overreact to it uh, and, and again say, oh my gosh, this is an illiberal response. It's not an illiberal response to be shamed or to have shame expressed, but it is anti-deliberative. It is it, it is perhaps not functioning to help us as a society think collectively about our problems, right? Mm. So yeah. if one of our problems is the maldistribution of supermarkets and produce in society, right, that we have food deserts, that we have vast areas of this country, especially poorer neighborhoods, where people can't get nutritious food for a decent price, that's a problem that we should be solving through processes of deliberation and policy. Uh, they're not going to be solved through shaming. And what I worry is that we are at a point in society where, um, because shaming is in many ways the default response to a situation of injustice, that we are we are forgetting our duty to deliberate among people who don't yet see the problem the same way. And so we're abandoning our, our, our ability and maybe weakening our muscles, our abilities to, to identify a problem, to define a problem, to examine potential responses, and then have our society, our community, our governments react to that problem in a reasonable way, right? To, to think and talk and act about a problem like grownups seems harder and harder for a variety of reasons. And that is one of my major concerns. I would like to see, maybe not today, but soon, have us address these questions of how to strengthen the practices of deliberation in society. Because we're we're facing massive crises, right? We're facing massive threats to the planet, global infectious diseases, massive human migration, these are disruptive. And in many ways, they're exacerbated by our, our number one problem, which is the warming of the planet. And we are incapable or seem incapable of gathering differently minded people to address and even acknowledge the problem because our cultural and communicative norms don't seem to allow for deliberation and serious consideration of serious issues. I think that the hardest thing for many, and I mean, I say this as, you know, as a, as a white man in America, is the shame of silence that you mentioned earlier, the shame of kind of just doing nothing, of of knowing that you are the results of privileges you're maybe not even aware of, but just mm -hmm. kind of saying, well, I'm, I'm not hurting anyone, I'm just kind of living my life. And I think right, that right. you make this important position that actually neutrality or silence is is not actually a valid position if you right. are trying to live, you know, uh, helping others or being a non-racist person, I suppose, right? Yeah, well it's well it's not enough to just be a nice person, right? Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just not treat people badly, right? Uh we have a greater responsibility um to those around us to work toward alleviating larger deeply seated problems, right? like food deserts, like environmental racism, right? These are, these are much bigger problems than someone using the N-word here or there. Uh, and, and, and we have yet to address them in any reasonable or systematic way. And I think we all have a, a very serious moral obligation to look at how our society runs, to acknowledge the extent to which the structural inequalities have benefited some of us. Look, in my own career, I know women who should have competed for opportunities I've had over the years, and they have paid a higher price than I have to play in this field, right? To be 
in my profession. They have had to endure sexual harassment in ways I have not. Uh, many of my African-American friends have had to endure um, racism, soft and explicit, uh, uh, you know, diminished expectations about their abilities, uh, suspicion about their qualifications. Uh, they have to they have to work extra hard to overcome those uh, aspects of bigotry that I might not have had to overcome. And therefore, I'm very aware of the fact that my success is partially due to the fact that the competition was winnowed by these deep-seated social phenomenon that put other people at a disadvantage, raised the costs of competing for them, and and basically put me ahead of the starting line uh, in the race. And that's a troublesome thing to acknowledge. It, it means that I can't be all so proud of what I've accomplished. Um, I can be appropriately proud of the quality of my work. I can be grateful for the response. But I, I do have to understand that, you know, I am here and doing what I do in large part because many of the most capable and brightest people who might have assumed all these positions and opportunities I've had uh, didn't get the opportunity or had to pay a higher price or simply have to put up with more every day, you know, whether that more constitutes itself as lower pay or higher blood pressure. You know, these are phenomenon societies. They are well-documented. We should acknowledge them. We don't have to walk around with, you know, big guilt and shame signs on us because of it. But once we acknowledge it, it means like, hey, I'm going to do what I can to make sure that maybe the the young people I'm teaching don't have the same situation down the line. So I'll do whatever I can do, little and big ways, to address this situation. And I'm totally good with that, you know, and I, I, hopefully I'll leave the world a little bit nicer than when I got here. But it won't be because I don't use the N-word. It'll be because I acknowledge these greater social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I'm really afraid that we, when we, when we both express our disappointment with people and engage in public shaming against people, that our analysis of that, our public discussion of that focuses on the individual expression of racism or sexism and not on the larger structural problems that enabled that person to achieve that level of success and maintain that level of success despite that person's uh, attitudes or actions. I've been speaking with Siva Vadianathan, cultural historian and Robertson professor of media studies and the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Siva, this has been really interesting. Thank you for joining us on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. You can find me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us, and we'll see you next week.